0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. The book of Revelation is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Asia Minor is a uh, modern-day turkey practically if you look at the uh, bible map maybe if you have a bible map in the back of your bible you see uh, the big section of lit- that is turkey It's called asia minor and uh, today turkey but these seven churches are the recipients of this revelation this revelation of jesus christ that was that uh, jesus gave to john and john communicated it to these churches now in these first three chapters that we're looking at and i know some people are disappointed we might not we're not going further into revelation uh, but we just want to look at these as we think about church revitalization because here we have messages to seven churches and studying these seven letters in turn will aid us in thinking about church revitalization as we read the critiques of each of these churches and the encouragements given to these churches. It will help us critique our own church and our own selves by these words from Christ to the churches. And today we're going to look at what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. And verse 7 there states, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to hear what the spirit says to ephesus because he is saying it to us as well let us read now god's holy inspired inerrant and infallible word to the angel of the church in ephesus write these words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands i know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you And remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. Now sometimes I, I wear a, a wireless mic, and we've had trouble with it. There's interference coming in. I don't know. We I think we're having a frequency problem. We're not uh, the the box up there, and the box that that I wear is something's something's not communicating well. We're not on the same frequency, and and so we get this static and feedback. It's kind of like what you what happens when you don't have the see some of the young people don't even know what we're talking about an fm radio or am radio where you're trying to dial it in and you're getting the static and you can't quite find the spot where you really hear it where you're really in tune it's important to be in tune so you can hear clearly and, and understand what's what's being said on the radio for example well as we come to the passage today we are hearing from christ and and when we look at these letters to these seven churches, we're hearing what Christ wants to communicate to the churches. And so we want to we be on the same frequency. We want to be in tune with what Christ is saying here, to listen to it, to take it in, and, and to, to be able to grasp it and apply it in, to our lives and to, to our church. So we want to look at this passage. And I've given you an outline there and the three points that uh, i want us to see as we try to get in tune with what jesus is communicating to us we want to see what jesus knows and we want to understand what jesus desires and also take a look at what jesus promises here in these seven verses in revelation chapter two well first we see here what Jesus knows, and this applies to actually all the letters, all seven of these letters. If you, if you look through these letters, each of them follows a pattern. They're the same structure uh, is, is the, the structure that is used throughout these seven different addresses to these churches. There's, there's a, a line telling us to whom the letter is addressed. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, etc., Then there is a line that describes Christ. And here we have the one who walks among the lampstands. And then there's the message part, which usually includes a commendation and possibly and usually a rebuke, and then some instruction. And then the conclusion of each of these letters has a promise to those who overcome. Each one has a promise to those who... Who overcome Now, the message part of each of these letters all begin the same way. I know. Jesus says to them, each of these churches, I know. I know your works. I know your troubles. I know where you are. Jesus knows everything about these churches. How? Because he walks among them. Now last week we looked at that. We looked at chapter 1 and we were encouraged that in spite of the discouragements and the difficulties that uh, these churches faced with the persecution that they were undergoing despite the appearance that they were forgotten by the Lord Jesus in fact we see here in this vision in chapter 1 that Jesus had not forgotten them he was walking among the lampstands the lampstands are the churches as it says in Chapter 1, verse 16 and 120, identifying the lampstands as the churches. The church is Christ's institution. He has not abandoned it. It It's his kingdom on earth. He's building it. He's building his church. And as we, if you were to go read through the book of Revelation, you will see, described in very graphic detail and, and imagery, that The gates of hell, the powers of darkness, evil forces that rise up against the church will fail. Christ's kingdom will be built. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Now, he knows. He is concerned. Each of these churches, he knows this church. He knows are you visiting with us, He knows your home church. He knows the church. He knows all about the church. He knows where we are. He knows what we do. He knows all of our circumstances. He knows our problems. He knows our shortcomings. And He has sent us His Word, just as He did the Ephesians. Let us hear what the Lord says to the Ephesian church. Let us hear what the Lord says to our church. Now let's look at Ephesus. What kind of church was Ephesus? Now Ephesus was an important city. Uh, I've been there. I've had the privilege of, of, be, of going to to Ephesus when we were missionaries in England. We had a retreat there in uh, the, the, the town that is modern-day Ephesus, the ruins of the old Ephesus are nearby, and, and it's a large archaeological dig, excavation. And it's wonderful. You can see so much of the, the, the city that has been recovered. And it's inspiring to know that the Apostle Paul and Timothy and John walked these streets. And there are actually places where they've uncovered Christian symbols, where, where uh, Christians have marked that they were present here in the city of, of Ephesus. Well, Ephesus was this important city. It sat on a body of water. It was the closest to where John was, who wrote this letter off the coast from the island of Patmos. Maybe that's why it was mentioned first. But it was, in fact, the most important of those seven cities uh, listed there in Revelation. It was a great center of, of commerce with its ports and its roads and connections. Much of the trade from the east came into the Aegean Sea through Ephesus. And it was a great religious center. It had the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there, the, the temple of Diana that, or Artemis that you read about in the book of Acts. The church figures prominently in the, Old, in, in the New Testament. Uh, we have, the, the, of course, the letter to the Ephesian church. The book of Acts uh, has a, a, a large portion of it dedicated to uh, the, uh, the, the, F, the Ephesian church as well. And we, we understand from the New Testament that after Paul established that church, Timothy was sent there for a time, and then tradition tells us that, that the apostle John lived there in his old age before he was exiled. So the church was an important city and had a rich pedigree of leaders and people like Paul and Timothy and John and others. Well, here in chapter 2, we find even more to commend the church at Ephesus. Verse 2 says, I know your works, your toil, your toil and your patient endurance. In this verse, he mentions three things that Jesus knows about the church at Ephesus. Their works, their toil, their endurance. He knows their works, their deeds, because he's present with them. They may not see him, but he is there, and he knows what they're going through. These were difficult times. There was persecution against Christians because Christians refused to worship the emperor of Rome. This meant that they lost their jobs, that their businesses were marginalized, and they were subject to even physical abuse to the point of death. Jesus knows their deeds. In spite of all this, they they pressed on. They did the things that they were supposed to do as Christians in that culture. He knows their toil, their hard work, their labor to the point of weariness for the kingdom. Jesus knew it was not easy for them. He understood that they even faced death on a daily basis. It's hard being a Christian there in Ephesus in those days. Yet they were patiently enduring. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. They courageously accepted suffering and hardship and remained faithful in the face of it. Verse 3 reiterates this. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So in the midst of the grind of their lives, they held up the banner of Christ unashamedly and despite the consequences that they faced. Well, there's a fourth thing that Jesus knows about the Ephesians. In verse 6, he says, You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and, and found them to be false. So there was some false teaching going on there in Ephesus, some false apostles that had come along bringing uh, wrong teaching. Now if you go back to the book of Acts, the last time the Apostle Paul, he was passing nearby, Miletus, and he calls the Ephesians' elders to come meet with him one last time. And he says this to him, to them in Acts 20, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Now we find here in Revelation 2 that those things actually did take place. Those warnings from Paul were taken to heart. Fierce wolves, false teachers had come in. But the Ephesians did not fall for their lies. They did not bear with those evil, false apostles. Verse 6 confirms this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, no one knows exactly what the Nicolaitans were teaching. They were probably espousing some some so-called new and improved christianity that overlooked immorality and that's true in our day you know people are coming along with false teaching in our day wanting to sacrifice the scriptures to the whims of modernity and you see that when people reject Christianity or abandon Orthodox Christianity for some liberal interpretation of it, it is, and, and, and I might say always, probably not, maybe not always, but usually at least, they do so because of a moral issue, not because of an intellectual argument. They abandon Traditional Christianity, they abandon a belief in the inerrancy of God's word because they don't like what it says. They want to compromise with the world. They want, usually, to be sexually immoral in our day and time. That's the big temptation. And every time I've seen it happen where people have abandoned Christianity or compromised and become liberal in their interpretation of Christianity is because they want to accept something that has been called immoral. Always, or they want to engage in immorality themselves. Well, the Ephesians weren't falling for that. They were orthodox all the way. They did not waver from the truth, but rather defended it valiantly against the schemes of the devil. They held firm to the truth that was delivered from the apostles. So the church at Ephesus had many uh, admirable characteristics. Jesus knows that, and he commends them for it. They were active, hardworking working, patiently enduring Orthodox Church. May God grant us to be the same. Jesus knows us. He knows what and where we are, truly and accurately. And he has sent this word to us. Let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now as we consider what Jesus sacrificed to create the church when we consider the gracious outpouring of all the spiritual blessings he pours out on the church, shouldn't we strive in return to be a hard-working, enduring, Bible-believing, and Bible-living church? Of course, yes, we should, no doubt. We would hope that the Lord would commend us in all respects as he has commended the Ephesian church. But we can't stop there. It would be nice to Because the second point that I want to bring to you today cannot be divorced from the first point. And the passage not only tells us what Jesus knows, it tells us what Jesus wants. Now even though there are several commendable things about the Ephesian church, and, and any church would love to be known as active, hardworking, enduring, and faithful to the Scripture. But here we have a shocker. You know, we, If someone said, that church over there is you know, a hard-working, very active church that is very true to the scriptures and, you know, even though there's much opposition to the church, they stand strong, stand firm. We would say, that's a great church. Well, Jesus says that we can be all those things and still not be pleasing to the Lord because we've forgotten the most important thing. It's so important that Jesus threatens to take this faithful, hardworking, truth-loving, orthodox church to take their lampstand, to remove their lampstand from its place, it says here. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means. It uh, certainly is not good (laughs) to have Jesus remove your lampstand from its place uh jesus walks among the lampstands he walks among the churches so jesus is going to remove their lampstand from the place of prominence the place where he walks among them it could mean that the church is destroyed it could mean that the church dies or ceases to be a church it could be that christ withdraws his presence from the church any of these is bad no matter what the case it's a threat And why are they under this threat of judgment? Verse 4. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So here we see what is really important to Jesus. What is more important than good deeds and hard work and patient endurance and right belief? Now, don't get me wrong, those things are all very important. But what is of utmost importance? And that is love love for the Lord. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, you know, you can be the best preacher in the world, but if you have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. See there, faith and knowledge are not as important as love. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, a church and Christians may be faithful to do good works, faithful in its defense of the truth, faithful in bearing up patiently through difficulty, but still perish due to lack of love. You see the quote on the front of the bulletin from John Stott's little book on this passage What Christ thinks of the church says, The divine lover still sorrows when his love is unrequited and pines for our continuing, deepening, maturing adoration. Love, then, is the first mark of a true and living church. Indeed, it is not a living church at all unless it is a loving church. The Christian life is essentially a love relationship to Christ. A church can only continue for so long on a loveless course. Without love, it ceases to be a church, a true church. Beasley Murray, in his commentary, says this. This kind of makes makes it make sense. Wherever love for God wanes, love for man diminishes. And where love for man is soured, love for God degenerates into religious formalism. And both constitute a denial of the revelation of God in Christ. Christianity without love is a perverted faith. What does Jesus want? Well, the greatest commandment we have in Scripture is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told uh, said in luke 14 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple now, that doesn't mean we hate anyone it just means in comparison of our love for the lord now, we we need to to love jesus so much more than even our family members or our, even ourselves you remember the story of mary and Martha. Martha was doing all the work when they had Jesus over for dinner. And Mary was just sitting there listening to Jesus. She wasn't helping out at all. And Martha asked Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? We can all identify with that. I'm doing all the work here. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Mary was sitting and admiring her Savior, Jesus. She loved him. Now what is love? We we have trouble in our day and time understanding what love is. They think Many people think it's just an emotion that I feel, a warm feeling I have towards someone. And Of course, when that disappears, they think the love has disappeared and that's the end of the relationship. But love is not primarily an emotion. Love is, love is more defined by what we do for another person. It's a, it's a sacrifice on the other person's behalf. We are, we're giving to those other people in our lives whom we love. The opposite of love is apathy. If we if we ignore someone, we're not loving them. When we're paying attention to them, when we're giving to them and sacrificing to them and putting them ahead of ourselves, that's love. Anyone who, uh, you know, when newlyweds get married, we had a, mar- a wedding here last weekend, and you think what a shock they're in for when they get married. You know, they're full of all these. Warm emotions, and, and it's a you know, the bride is beautiful, the groom is beautiful, but then they have to live together, and it becomes difficult because then you actually see the other person, you know, 48 hours a day, it seems like sometimes, and, and you've got to live with this person, and that's a cold dose of reality. But for the people who love one another, they, they give and they take and they, they sacrifice for one another, and they love one another the kind of relationship jesus wants with us to pay attention to him to listen to him to put him first in our lives that's what it means to love and now there will be emotions and feelings associated with that but that's not what drives the, the the relationship love is is active it's something that we do for the lord go through the bible is filled with marriage imagery to describe the, the relationship god has with his people think of the book of hosea think of the ephesians the letter to the ephesians ephesians 5 the relationship between the husband and wife is a picture of christ's relationship with his church it's a love relationship now the problem we have is we're all subject to the second law of thermodynamics i'm not a I'm not a scientist, but I've read. The second law of thermodynamics states that in all energy exchanges, if no energy enters or leaves the system, the potential energy of the state will always be less than that of the initial state. It's commonly called entropy. Now, what does that mean? It means unless somebody adds some energy in, energy dissipates. It it runs out. You lose energy. The wind-up watch has to be rewound. A car needs to be refueled. A fire must be stoked with more wood. Humans must eat food again to have energy to live. Flow of energy maintains order in life. Entropy wins when organisms or mechanisms cease to take in energy and they die. It wanes. Now what's true of watches and cars and fires and human bodies is also true of love. Love is subject to entropy. Love grows cold if it is not re-energized and rekindled. You think of a married couple. If they don't communicate with one another, spend quality and quantity time together, they don't forgive one another, then their love for one another will grow cold. A successful marriage is one that does things to overcome entropy, to refuel the, the relationship. And what's true of any marriage relationship, according to Scripture, is true of our relationship with God. The tendency we all have is for our love for Jesus to grow cold. Has your love for Jesus grown cold? How can we rekindle our love for Jesus? Well, he tells us here, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, thirdly, what Jesus promises Verse 7 To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now you remember back in Genesis when God created the Garden of Eden and placed Adam and Eve there, He also made uh, trees grow there. Two in particular, He mentions the tree of life and, of course, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were banished from the garden. And in Genesis 3.22 it tells us why. The Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He had to be banished from the garden. So the tree of life means eternal life. Life that never ends. Life that never runs out in the presence of God loving him forever with a renewed source of energy. In Revelation 22, at the end, uh, when we have this picture of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, it describes the city there as uh, through the middle of the... Uh, this is 22, two, "...through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." verse 14 of chapter 22, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. If we are to be those who conquer, to those who endure in this love relationship with, with Christ, if we are going to be the kind of church that is that is uh, active, that is hardworking, that is enduring in spite of opposition, that is faithful to the Scriptures, then we need to hear what is said to the church here. To remember. To remember from where we have fallen. Remember that relationship with Christ that you had at the very beginning and the wonder and joy that it gave you. And then repent. Wash our robes, as it says there in twenty-two fourteen. 14. The tree of life is for those who have washed their robes, who have come to the Lord and been cleansed and washed, and do the works you did at first. Go back to doing those things that you had zeal to do when you first came to the Lord. Taking up your scriptures, attending church, loving others, serving others, doing good works, doing all those things that that are driven by someone who has the gospel in their hearts and their minds. If Jesus wrote a letter to First Presbyterian Church of Biloxi, would he commend us for our hard work, endurance, and faithfulness to the truth of scripture and hatred of evil? And would he say to us, you have abandoned your first love? The good news is that He calls us to Himself. He will not let us stay in this cold place. He calls us to repent, to remember Him. It's a shame we're not doing the Lord's Supper today because we're called to remember Christ, to remember what He did, remember how much He loved us, and then in turn love Him back. Do those things that we did at first. May God grant us grace to be the kind of church that does all those things the Ephesian church is commended for and whose love has not grown cold. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we do pray that you would forgive us for being unloving, for compromising with the world, for becoming mediocre in our relationship with you, apathetic towards the things of uh, of, of God. And Lord, we pray that we would change, that we would repent, that we would truly... Do a 180 and go in the opposite direction of where we're headed. And Lord, we pray that we would actively do the things that are loving towards you. Help us, Lord, to grant us grace to do those things, to make every effort to grow in our relationship with you and to turn from the wrong ways in which we sometimes walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.